Welcome back to Do We Like Movies. I'm your host, Angel. And I'm your host, Javi. Or am I? <laughs> no, I am. Yeah, or am I? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are continuing our horror movie festival for the month of October <laughs> with uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Our pants shooting terror train is on its way! <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about the 1982 classic, The Thing. Which is a remake of a movie from 1951. Called The Thing from Another World, which was a remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. What? I just made that up. Yeah. <laughs> Those are fake facts. <laughs> have you ever seen Thing from Another World? No, never have. Always wanted to. Can never find a copy of it. Uh, my understanding of the movie is that it just is features a much more traditional looking alien. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't do that for The Thing. No, I mean... John Carpenter, this is for many people who follow his work. I will put it to you this way. He has two uh, seminal works that he has done in his career. One of them is Halloween, which we covered in our first episode you of know, the podcast. A, a very sleek and sexy, minimalist movie where you get to see the point of view of the serial killer. And then you get, what, three years later, you get this movie? <laughs> Yeah, well... Which like is literally years, the exact yes. opposite of sleek and sexy. <laughs> no, it is. It, it, I mean, the. I think it's, what's interestingly enough is the movie takes a much different approach to horror than Halloween does mm-hmm. in that it's going to show you the gore and it's going to give you all this other stuff. But I think the traits of it that make it a John Carpenter film, the score... Mm-hmm. The, Definitely have that. Uh, and just the overall sense of dread... That's in the background. I think mm-hmm. that crosses over. And I think one of the best things about this film is that the scariest parts of the movie aren't just not even when the thing is on camera or is in the scene. Um, and, you know, the, it, it features a very, actually a pretty stacked cast. You know, you got a young Kurt Russell, a relatively unknown Kurt Russell at the time. You got, you know, Keith David. Who I who you may remember as the pimp from Barbershop. Yes, but... <laughs> you might remember him as the voice of... <laughs> I'm more... Goliath from Gargoyles. Well, I more know him as the voice of Spawn from the HBO cartoon series. I'm, you see, my seminal... Uh, what's it called? Spawn will always be Michael J. White. <laughs> um, I, I will say that... This movie in recent years, it reminds me more of a movie that I will unfortunately say that I do love more than this. It reminds me a lot of Alien. Mm, well, I mean, it's not really unfortunate. I feel like when it comes to Alien movies, there's like it's the, the two camps of the Alien and the Thing fans. I think this movie does what Alien does as well in that it successfully merges the science fiction genre with horror. Yes, very much so. Um... And I think one of the things that, like I like we said in the beginning, that allows this to be such a good film is the fact that there's so much tension. That's I mean, the other movie that it actually kind of reminds me of <laughs> is a much more recent film, which I know has to be based on it in general, and that's Hateful Eight. At the very least, the <laughs> cinematography of it and the general location, like in the middle of a snowstorm. Yes, yeah. I can very like. Much there's see that. literally, I swear to you, the scene in Hateful Eight. Where they're walking from the from Minnie's haberdashery uh, to the I think stable where the horses are at, mm-hmm. and they have to use or the outhouse where they have to use like that rope fence to kind of yeah. get through. Like the harsh cold of that film reminds me a lot of the people who are here in Antarctica. Like there's a shot that looks like like the haberdashery looks like a, a yeah. the outside of the base camp. Of Outpost 242, I think that's what it's called. Uh, Interesting fact, uh, Quentin Tarantino actually used... He tried to use uh, music from The Thing for Hateful Eight, but was unable to get um, rights for it. Or something came up where I think he was trying to get John Carpenter to do the music, but something something It's why he ends up using Reagan's theme from Exorcist 2. Yeah. Is the fact that the thing, it was partly scored by John Carpenter, but also partly scored by Ennio Morricone, who does the score to Exorcist 2. And I think who also did the score for a bunch of spaghetti westerns. Yes. So I think, you know, nice little tidbit there. Um, interesting thing about the fact, or interesting fact about the thing, um, this movie was shit panned when it first came out. Yeah. 
Not many people liked it. It also came up, I think, the same weekend as E.T. or like two weeks after E.T., something like that. So you have one movie about an alien being lovable and cute and family-friendly and Spielberg-y. And then you have this movie, and it was just... It did not really do well. Well, the other thing, too, is Spielberg didn't just make E.T. in 82. He also did Poltergeist. And Poltergeist, despite the fact that it is a horror movie... Is a lot more whimsical than it's still a family anything movie. that you get here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is a very much a PG horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, very much so. And I think like Roger Ebert fucking hated it, and like it just got critics fucking hated the thing. They thought it was all blood and guts and no substance. Well, so, think of it this way: it's the guy who did Halloween. Halloween had such a. It, it was originally panned. It was a movie that ended up gaining in reputation after its initial run. Um, just based off of reviews once they started like changing the way they were looking at it. This film achieved cult status in the mid-80s. And especially now, right? Like To the point where obviously most people will look at it in hindsight as one of the better horror movies that's ever been made. Definitely. It's one of those movies that got, like you were saying, it got the cult following and over time people started appreciating just how well done this movie was, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so what was your first experience watching The Thing, if you remember correctly? <laughs> My first experience of The Thing was actually, I, God, some people may not remember this, especially younger listeners than me, uh, PlayStation 2. Had a no way had a video game adaptation of the thing. That was your first experience with the thing. I played the video game before I watched the movie. That's I've always wanted to find that video game. Like <laughs> I, it is that that video game has escaped me for years. Oh, it's even better. The reason why I played that video game is because I rented it at Blockbuster Video. Oh wow, you just fucking <laughs> dated yourself, you fucking fossil. <laughs> Holy shit. So was was the game good? I liked it enough. I mean... It made what? me watch the movie. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I was 11 years old. I, I, the, the, I had only seen Halloween in terms of anything else John Carpenter had ever done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during all the video game commercials, they kept saying, based on John Carpenter's The Thing. And I was just like, huh, that's so weird. Because... I knew John Carpenter made the thing, but I always got the chronology of it mixed up because if you ever watch Halloween, one of the horror movies that the kids are watching uh, during the movie is the original thing from another world. Mm-hmm. And the opening credits, those iconic opening credits where like, you know, the thing logo is like coming up like, yeah. like that is lifted directly from the original film. I think they did it using like an aquarium and I don't know, they did some special effects stuff. Right. Like, that was really cool for the time. And it's just, and that is, like, you know, so I I always thought that the thing came first, Mm -hmm. you know, but later I discovered that. Um, I will say that I really do love this movie. It gave me, I I love Kurt Russell and John Carpenter, because obviously I like Escape from New York. What about Um, Escape from LA? I like Escape from New York. <laughs> I also like Big Trouble in Little China. Oh my god. I, I hate admitting how much I love Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, it, it's, I, I feel like I'm an underrated director actor duo is John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. I yeah. think they did some great stuff together. And I think it's also. This movie is probably why Quentin Tarantino casted uh, Kurt Russell in uh, Hateful Eight. I was gonna say another underrated, uh, underrated uh, director and actor duo that I feel were you know tying it all together is gonna be Leo DiCaprio and Quentin Tarantino because I feel like mm, they were only they only did one movie together. No, they did technically two: Django and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's true. Which you didn't watch. And I fucking hate you. (laughs) I thought you were actually going to say Tarantino and Sam Jackson. That would have been much more appropriate. But Sam Jackson's never really been a leading man. I'd say he was very much the leading man in Hateful Eight. It was still Kurt Russell. (laughs) I'd say he was very much a leading character in Pulp Fiction, too. It was more John Travolta. Oh my god. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. We will hold... You know what? If we ever get the Patreon up and running, 
we can do an episode where all we do is yell at each other about which director <laughs> actor combos is the best. Jokes on you. I'm always gonna win because fuck you. <laughs> anyway, so my experience with this movie, I remember when I was little, like 10, 11 years old, when I started finding out about how great horror movies were. I remember E. I think it was E or Bravo, one of those fucking shitty channels, would used to do, like, the top 100 scariest movies. Uh, scary movie moments, and that's Bravo. Yeah. And I remember always in the high, like, 20s into, like, the high teens, or low 20s into the high teens, it has the scene, the, the infamous defibrillator scene. Yep. From this movie. And I remember I saw it, and I was like... That looked weird. I really want to watch that movie. And I was like, one day I'm going to watch it. I'm like... And then, you know, I was in high school finally. I was like old enough to start picking and handle horror movies, right? So I think I was like 15. Finally got to see the thing. Instantly fell in love with it. I was like, this movie's fucking amazing. I'm like, right off the bat. You know, and, uh, you know, a little bit of spoiler. 15-year-old Javi loves it. Guess what? Almost 30-year-old Javi still fucking loves this movie. I think it just hit me in a beat where we were surrounded by gore porn between mm. the hostels and the saws and a bunch That's of other true. Yeah, when I was a teenager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the aughts, right? Or just a bunch of shitty remakes with the Hills Have Eyes and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and all those movies, right? So I finally got to see a movie that did have gore. But oh, you that- mean The Thing 2011? Shut up. <laughs> oh, and I wanted I wanted to like that movie. I so wanted to like that movie. And I hate that I can't I can't <laughs> like that movie. But yeah, like I saw a movie where the thing wasn't the scariest part to me. It was the paranoia of everything that goes on, you know? So well, you know, as we get more in depth during our little dissection of this movie, uh, you know, I'm gonna be able to talk about and goosh. Just fucking goosh all over the place as this movie, you know, as we talk about it, right? So, I'd say we just jump right in. How about you? Sure, yeah. So, it begins with the biggest spoiler of the entire film. This movie owns with a huge spoiler where there's a sled dog running through the Antarctic tundra. And weird European guys are taking... Pop shots trying to shoot at it from the from this helicopter. Uh, and then we get, you know, we get introduced really quickly to kind of our, our, our heroes, right? Or our victims, heroes, whatever you want to call them. Which mm-hmm. is the American, uh, the American research team. Which has McCready, RJ McCready, played by Kurt Russell. It has Childs, played by Keith David. It has the Dr. Blair, or the scientist Blair, played by the... Oh, how so hunky and masculine Wilford Brimley. <laughs> and then, you know, like this, after that, this movie, um, I didn't really recognize many other actors. Was there anyone else that stood out for you? Mm, I mean, these are all character actors. There's yeah, nobody, like, there's no one who's particularly, like, famous, let's say. I could have sworn there was one of the guys from the Warriors in there, but who knows. Again. Character actors, not particularly <laughs> famous. <laughs> so, you know, the 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 people at Outpost... Oh my god, I forget what the name of the Outpost is. But, you know, the guys at the Outpost come out uh, because they hear the helicopter going off. And uh, they find out it's a Nor- it's, uh, it, they're people from a Norwegian uh, outpost. They land the chopper really close to the outpost... One of the guys tries to throw a grenade and, like, throws it behind him. Ends up killing himself and destroying the helicopter. Um, and the so this is famous. You know, it's crazy how they never actually switched this when they localized it in Europe. But uh, one of the, Norwe- the Norwegian guy that's shooting at the dog starts yelling about how don't get close to the animal. Uh, in Norwegian, I guess. Nor- Nor- yeah, in Norwegian. He starts yelling, don't get close to the animal, don't trust it, don't let it touch you. There's no subtitles or anything, so us as American audiences have no clue. But apparently, if you actually spoke Norwegian, you know, the biggest thing is, um, the biggest spoiler is that the dog is the alien. That's what he says. 
something to the effect that the dog isn't a dog. Godfather does this. Godfather does this in the scene where Michael is meeting with Always bring Salazzo. it back to Godfather. Well, no, no. The reason why I say it is because I like when movies do this. It's always interesting because, again, I don't speak Italian, but when I watch The Godfather and I see the scene between Michael Corleone and Salazzo when they're sitting at the restaurant, even though I don't understand exactly what Salazzo is saying to him, I know exactly what's being told. And one of the things I appreciate about this scene is I get that exact same vibe where... I don't know what this guy is saying to me, but I understand exactly what he's saying, if that makes any sense. No, definitely, because it's one of those things where you know it's important, and it happens to be very important. It's just one of those off chances that if you're watching this with somebody of that, or that understands the language being used, um, you're like, oh, well, okay then, (laughs) you know? But I guess you can never guess to what effect the dog was going to be so instrumental in this movie. Um, same thing in The Godfather. I'm pretty sure that I'm line... pretty sure that this film in in trailers that were coming out before it came out were not showing you anything that was going to happen. They didn't do trailers like they do today where they'll show you the entire film. Well, that's the thing. Some trailers... Well, it was that time, in, a weird time in the 90s where they gave you a whole fucking movie in the trailers. Uh, but I don't think this movie... I mean, you couldn't. You couldn't get away with that. Um, so the Norwegian... Scientist ends up getting killed by Gary, the the outpost commander. Um, after he met, after the guy ended up shooting one of the other American outposts guys, uh, and right away they are trying to figure out what happens. You know, so the dog immediately uh, takes to one of the guys. Um, I think his name is Clark. Like he's the he he looks like he's in charge of all the dog all the sled dogs for the team. Uh, so R.J. McCready and a couple of the other, um, I don't even know what to call them, Americans, I guess. <laughs> like, because they're not all scientists. It's mm-hmm. like a it's like a, a grab bag of different people, right? It, again, this is the part of it where it reminds me a lot of Alien. Because Alien, I think Ridley Scott, in one of the promotional materials or in an interview, like, they, he essentially kind of referred to the people in his film as not scientists, but more like space truckers. These yeah. guys all feel like blue-collar workers that are in this uh, outpost. Well, there's Copper, who's an actual doctor. And then, but yeah, that's, I guess that adds a little bit to the whole thing. is because you're not really sure what they're doing up there. Look, in the 80s, we did not like smart, introverted characters like we did in the 70s. In the 70s, we liked these really dark, introverted character actors like Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino. Now we love fucking Wilford Brimley. (laughs) The fucking, like, magnetic sexual energy that he's just cracking. Hey, if they made this movie two or three years later, it would have starred Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers like Predator did. Don't even get me started about (laughs) it. You know what? We can go on this whole thing about how great Predator was and it like merged slashers with sci-fi movies, but I don't But again, this movie is kind of doing something similar to that. Mm -hmm. It very much feels like a movie of the time in the 80s uh, that was doing this. (laughs) It feels like they're just... They're just science guys, and the thing is, they're just like, look at all the science they're doing, because of all the computers, <laughs> and like, so that that's it, and they're like, don't question what they're fucking doing in Antarctica, they're exploring with science. So, they end up exploring the Norwegian set, or, Norwegian set, sorry, the Norwegian camp, which they then see has completely been set ablaze, has been destroyed, um... And they managed to bring back something that was torched, right? Something that that like a like a charred body. And uh, our McCready and the group end up bringing the body back. And this is where it starts getting interesting. Sexy ass Wilford Brimley starts leading a uh, autopsy of the creature, and what they find out is that it's not human. Like, but it looked like it was trying to become human. Mm-hmm. So it's like the charred remains of something that was mid. I think the word they used was metamorphosis. And yes. meanwhile, while this is all happening and these guys are trying to figure stuff out, the dog gets put in the other kennel or in the kennel with the rest of the sled dogs. And then we get that fucking awesome scene of what I can only describe as the meat flower. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, that sounds as gross as I wanted it to. And it's where the fucking, like, husky, like, rips itself open. Yeah. And just, like, its face splits in half. Which, first of all, anytime I see that in a movie, it always freaks me out. Whenever, like... Something gets split bilaterally and opens to see something unnatural. Yeah, it's the same reason why when I watched Shin Godzilla a few years ago, it freaks me out the fact that the Godzilla design, that creature has no tongue mm-hmm. and that the mouth opens sideways. It looks, yeah, it, it opens like a fucking predator face. Yeah. Like, going back to Predator. <laughs> So the the fun thing about this, the fucking nightmare fuel that was created for this film all comes back from a young upstart special effects artist named Rob Botton. Literally his first movie. Isn't it Rob Bottin? Shut the fuck up, dude. <laughs> oh my god, you fucking nerd. Yes, uh, it's Rob Bottin. Is that what you wanted? Do you want me to say you're right? Well, he was one of those guys along with, uh, what's the other guy? There's the famous one, too, that did Friday the 13th. Uh, Tom Savini? Tom Savini, right. Dude, Are you sure it's not Savini? This is the... No, it's Savini. Yeah, bitch. <laughs> oh, for real? Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna fucking do to you what Wilfred Bribley did to this cast. <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, so Tom Savini, like, Rob, Rob Botten, Botten, they started, like, really bringing fucking gore with practical effects. And that's what's awesome about this movie is a lot of it, all of it is practical effects. And at this time, Rob is, like, 22 years old. He's a fucking kid. First movie he's ever been in, or he's ever done. And pretty much he gets free reign to make whatever the fuck crazy thing he wants. It's really nuts that we live in a time now where all new movies that come out will never really see effects that look like this anymore. No. Like, this it was this was very much a special time in film where you were watching things being done in a way that you'd never seen before. Yeah, and they were being done well. Like, that's the other thing is how fucking great it looks. You know, uh, like, we get... <laughs> Like we in this scene, we get that shot of the poor dog that gets just sprayed down with fucking Pepto Bismol <laughs> yep. as it gets like infected and turned into like assimilated into the thing. Um, and at this point, the the rest of the the rest of the folks at the uh, outpost finally hear the animals like dying, <laughs> like for lack of a better term, or being turned. So they come rushing in and they see this fucking disgusting looking creature with like just viscera and guts going all over the place and tentacles going all over the place this the problem with trying to explain this in a podcast is that this is really is one of those movies you have to see it you have to see it because the way we try to describe it is just not going to make any sense to you oh meat flour will make perfect sense once you see it (laughs) but you know like and then you and then you you learn right off the bat, right? That's when they learn the importance of the of the flamethrowers because there are no. I mean, yes, there are guns in this movie, mm. but that's not how they kill the thing. That's not how they fight back against the thing. They use fire. It's also one of the reasons why I like Alien better than Aliens mm-hmm. because I feel like Aliens is obviously becomes more of an action film because you have people with guns shooting monsters. But one of the things I love about Alien is that they don't really have weapons like that. And this is kind of the same thing. It's people that are not soldiers. They're not prepared to handle, you know, what they're about to deal with. And I think one of the things is that really sets in as all of this is starting to occur at the same time is the paranoia starts to set in amongst our human characters. And that's where it begins. When Blair, you know, so Blair ends up doing a second autopsy on the meat flower and finds out that this creature, the same thing that was turning into a human, actually created a dog and was going to turn into a dog but they caught him mid mid transformation. Uh, yeah, mid transformation. So that's when Blair makes the uh, he makes the, the 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 terrifying realization that this thing can mimic life and can become anything it wants. So suddenly he plants the seed in the group. And the most terrifying thing about this film then kind of comes to light is that you don't know who you can trust anymore. 
Yeah. This you, film is all about isolation, mm-hmm. and it's about dealing with great paranoia. And, you know, a lot of people... It, it really interesting. One of the fan theories is that this movie was talking about AIDS, the AIDS epidemic, because you got a bunch of guys and people getting... You know, they have the whole blood test, and it's in the middle of the yeah. 80s, right? And I don't think it is... I think... I mean, I guess... Ra- John Carpenter will lie to you, and he will tell you that there is no underlying morality in a lot of his movies, but there is. To an extent, there has to be. It's just, the films that, it, it, you know, the message in his films, he's, he's a hippie. The guy Fuck is Fuck you, hippie. John Carpenter, I know your shit better than you do. <laughs> like, John Carpenter is a hippie, and he came up in a time where people were dealing with, you know, women's liberation, the Vietnam War... Uh, and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of what he does, especially in his early career, is it's counterculture filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Um, you know, the the guys find out that there's a spacecraft, so that the thing had crash landed on our planet somewhere about hundred thousand years ago, and. You know, as they learn that th- as this creature can assimilate things, they start doing certain things to try to to try to limit the exposure to each other and limit the risk of assimilation, right? So they start cooking their own food. They start like keeping to themselves. They start trying to avoid each other, right? So I forgot to bring it up, but there's that part where um, Wilfred Brimley's character Blair does the super like. Impossible. He runs that impossible simulation using like the Macintosh computer from 1982, where he figures out that the world can be completely assimilated in like three years or some shit like that. In a matter of years, the entire world can be assimilated by the thing. And I'm like, how? What the fuck did you plug in to get those numbers? You know what? If you ask, you want to ask. Despite the fact that I work with computers, if you want to ask me. What I think the point of doing all these computations is, I won't be able to tell you. It just makes the threat real, right? Sure, it does. <laughs> I'm a millennial. All I do is computers for is to look at fucking cat pictures and porn. Excuse me, cat porn pictures. What? What? <laughs> You're the one that looks at cat porn all day, fucking weirdo. What? Shut up. <laughs> but at this point, Blair's starting to how we say look lose- at cat porno. Lose his fucking mind. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and this, you know, if this was like a psychedelic trip, this is where In the Garden of Eden would play. <laughs> well, you know what? Again, it's another it's another good thing to do in a film like this where you already have characters that are highly suspicious of each other and then you pick one of those characters to become evil. Yeah. I'm going to reference another film that you're going to be angry and be like, why it's the fuck be, does this remind you of this? It's either going to be Godfather or Batman. No... Oh, <laughs> this reminds me of the John Voight character from Anaconda. I swear <laughs> to fucking God, I knew you were going to say Anaconda as soon as you said John Voight. <laughs> Why? <laughs> this is like when I brought up Sausage Party last week. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> At least mine made sense. Did it though? <laughs> anyway, well, how the fuck does he remind you of anaconda <laughs> a because i have terrible taste in films <laughs> and b because again you have one character that's supposed to be one of the group that somehow starts sabotaging everyone else uh, it would have been more appropriate if you said <laughs> fucking billy from jurassic park 3 Sure, I guess, but Billy doesn't do it intentionally. He doesn't... Oh, I'm sorry, he accidentally steals raptor eggs? I'm not gonna let you slander Billy on this podcast. <laughs> I start watch all this argument, he's not even fucking Billy. <laughs> we already forgot his character name. Oh my god. So, um, at one point they kill this character named Bennings, doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, that's the thing. A lot of this crew is really, monster fodder. Yeah, they're just monster fodder. Like, there's the guy that kills himself because he's afraid of being assimilated. There's Bennings, who you have no point, uh, have, have any inclination why he becomes a thing. Honestly, it's like Battlestar Galactica. It feels like they just start throwing shit and be like, that person's a Cylon, you know? 
Same thing. That person's a fucking thing now. But, um, there's this one part where Blair loses his fucking mind. And he, like, kills the dogs. And he, like, destroys the helicopter. And he, like... You know, he really fucking Wilford Brimley's up and just, like, diabetes rage, like, just starts smashing all the computers and all, like, the, all the, uh, communications instruments. Mm -hmm. Because I forgot who it was. I think it was Windows had been trying, you know, because they make a point of it. They make a point that one of the guys had been sitting close to the communication shit for, like, weeks trying to get, trying to get somebody, trying to, you know, hear from somebody. Um, so obviously they use it and it has a purpose and then, but, but Blair and now this, is it because he went crazy? Is it because he's paranoid? Is it because he feels like he needs to save the world? Or is it because he's already the thing and he doesn't want any of these guys getting out? Obviously when I first saw this movie, I thought it was because he was the thing. Mm-hmm. And that, and I guess that's where it becomes the that that becomes the big debate of the movies. At what point does Blair get turned? You know, yeah. because you know, it, you know, big spoiler alert on the movie we're talking about. Wilfred Brimley's the bad guy. Yes. <laughs> Which uh, yeah, remember that guy that tells you about diabetes and he was banging I forgot who in cocoons. Yeah, but you know who the real villain of this film is? It's diabetes. <laughs> So at what point does he become the the fucking thing, right? Um, and I'll, I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit later. How there's a lot like this is no way is a perfect movie. There's a lot of plot holes in it, um, but it's a lot of stuff that you know. I'll get into it a little bit later. Let's just truck along. So the the group ends up. Losing faith in, I think his name is Gary. He's like the main leader of the outpost because he doesn't know what to do. And at one point, everyone starts fighting for guns. <laughs> and since no one trusts each other, it t- kind of takes McCready to kind of get everyone back in, um, back in, uh, kind of back in line and get them focused on survival, right? Mm. So when they go out and they find this guy that the the guy that had killed himself, he set himself on fire to avoid being assimilated. Um, McCready notices that um, there's some lights on in his shack, so he goes with one of the other characters named Nalls to go check it out. Meanwhile, the rest of the group is trying to re- regroup back at the um, back at the regular outpost or the main the main outpost. Uh, Nalls ends up finding a jacket with McCready's name on it that's been torn to shreds. Um, and he ends up losing McCready in the snowstorm, and the the rest of the group block him out. So at this point, uh, they you know they think McCready is assimilated and he's the thing. And while they're debating whether they should trust him or not, or not, or let him back in, especially since they just made him leader, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, McCready ends up breaking inside, breaking inside of the, uh, of the, uh, what's it called? The outpost. And while everyone is ready to attack him, he, uh, ends up grabbing a stick of dynamite and just threatens to murder everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, fucking... Dude, dude, this guy's fucking hardcore. <laughs> if I don't live, no one lives. <laughs> it's like the ultimate you don't win scenario. Like, even if... because, But again, it's the whole... It, it's playing on his whole paranoia. While everyone has, like, this self-preservation, like, I need to survive, McCready's this badass that's like, well, at least the thing will die too, you know? <laughs> well, I think you could probably argue that Blair also has that kind of intent as well. Yeah, as far as we know, as long as Blair hasn't turned into the that's thing. That's the yet. question, right? Yeah, Like, that know? is the debate, and that's why this film is, like, you know, the purpose of what some of these... The intent of some of these characters does get clouded by that. Yeah. Um, but there's also just a part of me that really just thinks that... I think Blair and McCready, like, both kind of have the same goal. They just... They go about it different ways, right. you know, while one tries to keep the group together... And tries to survive, Blair doesn't care. He would rather everyone die. I think the thing is, I think where it becomes a little cumbersome is the character of McCready, like, 
is someone who's trying to be portrayed as a lot more altruistic. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the argument, an argument that you could make out of it is what's better? Is it better to be altruistic or is it better to just say that I'm the I'm going to do it at for whatever means necessary? Mm-hmm. I think that Blair is that guy. Yeah, very much so. And then, like, especially with Blair, what's really interesting is, like, you know, they, they take him out to the tool shed and they lock him in there during the storm. And they have that scene where they go back and check up on him. And then, I don't know if you noticed, like, I'm, I'm sure you did, but, they, like, when they open the gate to look at him through the door, they see that he's made a noose. Yeah. <laughs> like, he makes the noose and he looks through it, but yeah, he looks... we both, like, laughed at it when we saw the Oh, movie. yeah, okay, so I did watch yeah. that part with you. Yeah, so he has the noose ready and he's just like, hey, guys. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, hey, guys, I don't... I'm not crazy anymore. You should just let me back in, you know? Let me back <laughs> into the... Let me back into the outpost. Um... But, you know, it's one of those, yeah, it's definitely one of those characters where it's like, yeah, he's the asshole, but he's the asshole for good reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the biggest question of this movie for me, even to this day, I wish I can tell people, I don't know at what point Blair gets um, gets turned, you know? And I think it's one of those things that only this movie can get away with, you know? So, this takes us to the famous uh, defibrillator scene. Yes. Angel, how did you feel about the defibrillator scene? Um, <laughs> did, it, did, did it make you fucking shit your pants? The part about it that grosses me out to this day, that I that I the, the one image that I just cannot get out of my head is them about to hit, you know, clear, do clear on the guy with the defibrillator. Yeah. And then his stomach, like, opens <laughs> up like a, a pair of jaws and like bites off the hands of the guy with the defibrillator. It just so suddenly, you know, I'm just a guy who it freaks me out to see stuff like that, right? Body horror like does terrible terrible things to me. Oh, when this movie has a lot of that. If I you think love this body movie, horror. It's interestingly enough, I think that people will argue against horror remakes all the time. Mm-hmm. I think two there's when it comes to body horror there's two movies that i think way outshine their original black and white counterparts and one of them being the thing mm-hmm. and the other one is the fly that yes. comes out in the 90s with jeff goldblum america's sweetheart oh no it was the 80s too fly was yeah, also the, that was 80s. In the 80s yeah yeah so it's you know it again i i, I this movie feels like a lot of other movies of the period mm-hmm. but all of those movies have such a distinct like there's something about it that makes them distinct. Mm-hmm. Yes, this reminds me of Alien. It reminds me of Predator. It reminds me of The Fly. But all of these movies are iconic that oh, I'm listing. Definitely. Uh, fun fact about that scene: the guy when the guy gets his arms ripped off, that is actually an or like an actual. And the actor is an amputee mm-hmm. who was missing his arms, so they gave him like you know fake arms. Fake arms. And then uh, the. The stomach is a pneumatic vice. So it's like pressure loaded to close in on the fake arms. So this guy had these like fake arms actually literally ripped off of his stumps. <laughs> and it's like it, that's why it looks so realistic when he's free, when he's flailing about. Interestingly enough, yeah. Like that's the other thing too. Like I remember watching like a documentary on E.T. Where they talk about how in one of the scenes where E.T. is walking around like drunk in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. That Steven Spielberg actually casted a boy who had no legs. Oh, I thought he actually casted a drunk alien. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, but again, uh, it's, it's like what we're talking about in this period of time of special effects that you'll never get back. Oh, right? definitely. For sure. Um, this is the part. Actually, it wasn't even the, the, the stomach part that got me. The part that got me is when Norris's head separates itself all from of the that dude's stuff body. Is, all of that stuff is cartoon to me. Really? Yeah. It like I can watch it and it doesn't really freak me out. But the part of it that super freaks me out is the when the dog turns into the thing and this defibrillator scene. Those are the two that just I like they gross me out to no mm. end. Really? Because for me it was definitely when the dude's head. So it's like, so McCready runs over, sets fire to the corpse, and kills the thing, but then the head separates and turns into this weird spider thing. Mm. 
which McCready ends up killing too. But I don't know why. It's just the whole unnatural thing. The fact that it's a, it's like a human head, and we know what human heads are supposed to do. And suddenly you're a spider. And I'm just like, fuck that. But this, you know, this scene, the purpose it serves is it shows McCready that every single part of the thing, down to a molecular level, is its own living organism. And with its own uh, fight or flight response, right? Um, so this leads to another famous scene, which is, I believe, the, the blood test scene. Now, this scene has so much fucking tension in it without even the thing being involved, right? This is actually my favorite scene of the film. Same. It is one of my favorite scenes, and it's just so well done. Uh, because, the you know, at one point, the again, the outpost crew turns on McCready again. He manages to take the gun from Gary... And before Clark can jump him, he has, like, the scalpel behind his back, and he tries to stab McCready. McCready ends up killing him. And he doesn't know if he's a thing or a human, right? So they end up drawing blood from him. They draw blood from, uh, I think it was Norris, the guy that got his arms ripped off. They tie up the rest of the guys, and McCready trusts nobody. He's the one with the flamethrower, too, right? So he then tests Clark's blood... And, you know, he the way he does this is genius. You know, everyone cuts everyone cuts their own thumb and puts blood in a Petri dish. Mm-hmm. And then they take a wire, heat it, and then they jam the blood. And if it reacts, if it jumps or does anything, then they know it's the thing. And they know they can immediately torch that person. So as they... First they test the corpses, and then... Um, you know that he lets out the blood into the into the petri dish, and he does Clark, and then child and then they see that his blood doesn't react, mm-hmm. and then Childs tells him, "Well, I guess that makes you a murderer, doesn't it?" But then McCready's like the look on McCready's face when he realizes that, you can tell it like fucking like ripped his soul out of his body, like mm-hmm. fuck, I killed a guy, and but also fuck, I can't deal with that right now. We got more important shit to worry about. They just did so... It was so fucking well played. Like, it was just very well acted. I love that scene. You know, they managed to test the rest of the Bloods. I think they test Windows, who's human. They test Childs, is human. Nalls is human. And then I forgot whose it was that finally reacts. I think it is... Palmer? Yeah, Palmer's is the one that they jam the they jam the blood and it goes flying like two feet in the air, and they have that awesome scene where he like wigs out and turns into a fucking thing monster right then and there. And again, they do that fucking thing again where his head opens up halfway down the way and he bites into the other dude and he fucking kills him. Oh god, that whole that whole scene was fucking great. You know? Yeah, there's fantastic tension. The payoff is excellent when you see like how gnarly the creature ends up becoming. So finally, we're down to our final four heroes. Five heroes. No, technically four. So we got Childs, Gary, Nalls, and McCready. So the last one they need to double check to see, or they need to test to see if he's actually the thing, is Blair. Mm-hmm. So... Child stands guard. The rest of the group goes to look for Blair. Blair is nowhere to be found. What they actually find instead is a tunnel leading under the... uh, Going down under the... uh, Into the... How Shawshank Redemption. I know. Very very Shawshank Redemption. The tunnel goes under the compound. And, you know, as they're trying to escape from the... Or as they're trying to leave the shed... They see that the generator's blown, and which essentially makes the compound useless. So th- pretty much the group all decides that, you know, they're going to die no matter what. That without any, without any power, they have, to, they have resigned their fate, that there's no way they're going to survive the night. And the thing is going to try to hibernate again. So they figured, all right, 
let if he uh, let's not let him do that. Let's just fu- if we're gonna die, let's fucking take him with us. So they fucking burn down and explode the entire compound. They go down into his hidey hole to try to for the final confrontation. Right. This whole time, child fucks off somewhere in the middle of the storm, and then uh, McCready, Nalls, and Gary confront Blair. Immediately, Gary gets killed. Nalls disappears. McCready has his final confrontation where he uses dynamite to finally explode everything, killing the thing, at least Blair, and destroying the entire compound. And McCready's tired. He's half dead. He's exhausted. He just wants to just fucking fall asleep. But he knows it's going to, you know, the fires are the only thing keeping him warm. But he knows that's going to give up. Then, Childs comes over and sits next to him. And McCready immediately confronts him. You know, where were you? Childs tells him he got lost in the snowstorm. And that he finally found his way back. So. Which obviously not only makes McCready suspicious, but also arises the suspicion of the audience. Yeah. Because it's true, Childs disappears. You have no clue where he's gone. Like you, you have every, you have no reason to believe him. You also have the Blair thing that happened. Now you already saw somebody turn on, on the group. So it's perfectly believable that Childs can also turn on everyone. And then, I love McCready's line where he says, "Well, if you are the thing, I'm in no shape to stop you." Or he said, "We're in something to the effect that we're in no shape to stop each other." So he's like, why don't you just sit down for a drink? So he pulls out the bottle of scotch that they that he'd been drinking all the entire movie, because mm-hmm. why the fuck not? Pours uh passes the bottle over to Childs, Childs drinks it, and you know, McCready lets out this little smile and resigns his to his fate. Movie fades to black. Now, I want to talk about a fan theory real quick. Okay. There is a fan theory. That Childs really is the thing. And the reason why McCready smiles is because he, he's like, I gotcha, bitch. Because supposedly the bottle that McCready had, he was carrying Molotov cocktails, which are gasoline mixed with whatever shit, right? Usually gasoline. So the theory is that... He didn't actually give him the bottle of whiskey. He gave him a Molotov cocktail filled with gasoline. But because the thing wouldn't know how to react, Mm -hmm. just starts swigging gas. Something a human wouldn't do. Obviously, yes. So the idea is that McCready doing that, tested Childs, finds out he's the thing. And that's why he, he let out that little like smirk at the end. He's like, I fucking knew it. But at the end of the day... Whether it Childs is the thing or not, whether McCready is the thing or not, and whether these guys are, you know, whether they survive or die, I honestly feel it was like the perfect ending for this. Film. Oh yeah, are you kidding me? One of the things that that I love the most is the ambiguity of the ending. Totally, I appreciate Childs is my favorite character in this film, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that he's not as heavily featured as some of the others. Mm-hmm. I really love him. I really love Keith David. That's probably part of it, but the other he has part an of iconic it, voice, man. But the other thing of it is, again, Tarantino lifts this when we get to Hateful Eight because the film ends with two characters, who you know you can't tell which one of them is the hero or the villain or if there is one, mm-hmm. and they both essentially know that they're gonna die together, so they end up spending the last minute going over the Lincoln letter, right? That's right. Again, yeah. it, this is this film is is it's fantastic. Um, the ending, John Carpenter, if there's anything that he really knows how to nail in his films, it's endings. Oh, definitely. Um, definitely. There's a feeling that something is out there mm-hmm. to every one of his films. There's a feeling in this film where you could probably believe that both of these characters will die, or maybe McCready does die, and Childs is the thing, and Childs will continue going on. Mm-hmm. Even if you know that he's not, you know, dead. Uh, another one that's a carpenter, and you know, like Halloween. Halloween, Michael Myers is presumed dead. Then Loomis looks over the balcony, and Michael's gone. Mm-hmm. And you just hear the heavy breathing as you go through all the locations that he was in previous to that. Um, 
I think the other film, despite the fact that it's not a film that Carpenter directed, I think it's very much a Carpenter movie. If you ever talked about Halloween 3, the ending of that film where, you know, the Tom Atkins doctor character is trying to get them to turn off the commercial that's going to turn people into bugs that, you know, explode their heads. I mean, if you watch that movie, it's both plausible that it ends with all the kids in the world dying as a result of that one commercial or that they actually turned off that last commercial on that last channel and they it saved just the in world time to save the world it's the ambiguity yeah. and i i definitely appreciate an ending like that there was a test ending a happy ending the good the the happily ever after ending where McCready gets saved by like the military and gets taken to Costa Rica because you know they're in Antarctica so they got to go to South America and a Costa Rican doctor is like yes señor McCready you are human after all and you saved the world good job <laughs> and like RJ McCready was like fuck yeah it's Miller time or some shit you know and then like Audiences were like, that fucking sucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Audiences fucking hated that movie. It's my understanding. I don't know. I don't know if it's true. But, yeah, the ending is so fucking iconic. It's so fucking perfect. It's like, you know, in a movie of paranoia, you know, and, and it's like, it, you know, it takes place in 1982, right in the middle of the Cold War. Like, this movie is the fucking, like, the picture perfect example of mutually assured destruction. You know? We don't know what our enemies look like anymore. No, not at all. And it's like your own paranoia and isolation has made you destroy everything else around you. At the end of the day, it's just you and him. You don't know if he's the bad guy. You don't know if you're the good guy. <laughs> all you know is you're tired and you know into the long, cold, dark night that is your life. Do we like the thing? Oh, fuck yeah, I like the thing. <laughs> I think it goes without saying I fucking love the thing. And I think it's honestly in my top five horror movies. Like, favorite horror movies. Um, this is a movie that was so fucking just iconic. It has great shots. It has great fucking just monster designs. I love what they did with practical effects. Like you said, Childs great fucking character he's like maybe in fucking a quarter of the movie maybe you know like with how much focus they don't have on him but keith david is just such a fucking memorable actor he did great you know um yeah like i really love this movie it's one of those movies that doesn't need a sequel i thought the idea of having prequels was interesting is it about the norwegians that they meet? it was supposed to be about the norwegian outpost okay but then they fuck up because the Norwegians met Americans. Oh, fuck. Okay. Alright. <laughs> so, well, no, what? They Prometheus did. They Prometheus did, but it was kind of smart what they did because they had the one or the two remaining Norwegians were, at, were uh, like the scientists. Not the scientists. They were like the guys that got them down there. And they actually only spoke Norwegian. They needed a translator in the movie. So, I guess that kind of was cool, but at the same time, I'm like, nah, you Prometheus did yeah, so fucking that hard. Sounds, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, because Mar Mar Mary Elizabeth Winstead's the main character. She's R.J. McCready of the movie. And, I mean, no knock on her. She's a great actress. I love her, but I was, it's just... It just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with where this movie started. Yeah, and, like, their version of the blood test was using inorganic material, so they check people's fillings... Nah. And then it's not the same. It doesn't carry the same weight as the blood test. Sounds like a know? remake at the same time. It, 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 it's that's part why. remake, it's part, part prequel. It's part remake, part prequel, and at the and none of it really hit. Gotcha. So, um, I definitely like the thing. I don't think I'm as crazy about it as you are. Um, I definitely appreciate the chances and risks that John Carpenter took, and I think the film merits rediscovery at all times mm -hmm. is it as good to me as something I, I can't explain why I love Assault on Precinct 13 mm -hmm. is it as good as that is it as good as Escape from New York these are is, all John Carpenter movies by the way yeah, in case you guys is, are wondering is it as good as The Fog you know like I, I, I put this on even footing with The Fog despite the fact that I'd say maybe this gets a little bit more 
uh, you know, love It's okay for me. to be wrong, you know? <laughs> I think, again, hey, one of the things that's really good about us both being on this show is that we don't always have to agree on every single thing. Mm, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if anyone listens to this and, you know, if you were more on the Halloween bandwagon and that kind of style yep. of film that John Carpenter made, that might be more your... Something like The Fog might be more your taste. Yeah. Because it doesn't reveal as much. This is more on the Escape from New York side in terms of it, like, kind of pulls out of the horror genre a little bit more into a thriller and science fiction film. Definitely. Uh, one thing I did want to add on, if people do feel the need to go check out more and want to learn more about the thing lore, like Angel said, there's a PlayStation 2 video game. Dark Horse actually also did a mini ser- a couple miniseries, uh, like four-issue miniseries uh, comics about the thing, about the thing encountering other people, other explorers. Um, they did one sequel series, which was... Sounded cool. It fucking sounded rad when I was 15. And now that I think about it, it is really stupid. Because the premise is that... It, pretty much the premise was the what I just told you about. The happy ending. Was that the thing manages to make its way to South America. Okay. And RJ McCready has to fight the thing again. I just pictured... The thing wearing like sunglasses and a straw hat. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing is like assimilating a bunch of brown people in fucking South America. And then they rehash the the thing, the fact that that, uh, Childs escaped. And they're like, oh, is Childs a thing? And then you find out Childs isn't the thing and that it's actually Nalls who disappears. I was like, oh, this is so cool. I want to learn more. And then as an adult, I'm like, this just is fucking stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. But, yeah, definitely it's a fun world. It it had a huge impact on horror movies and just the horror genre, especially at that crossroad between... um, between, uh, what's it called? Um, why am I blanking between sci-fi and horror? Yeah. <laughs> why did that take me forever? But yeah, video games like Dead Space, fucking Doom, like, you know, Run Like Hell, another old-timey <laughs> video game callback. You know, all these movies, like, have a lot to to take from the thing. Yeah. We'd like to thank everybody for joining us for this episode of the show, and uh, we hope that you guys continue to follow us as we have a few more films left in our horror movie film festival. Next week should be pretty interesting. I would ask, have you ever watched the original 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre before? I watched the Jessica Biel one because... It's pretty good. Jessica Biel. <laughs> I mean, no, the the remake to Texas Chainsaw Massacre is pretty good. Um, Wasn't Skeet Ulrich in in the remake? I don't remember. Do I, don't I think ha- so? Do I hate Skeet Ulrich? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I'm really looking forward to this. Will be my first time watching the 1970s uh, Texas Chainsaw. It's going to be a very different style of movie than what you're used to. I can't wait to not want to eat meat for a week. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, we hope that you guys continue to join us. We actually have three films left in our uh, horror movie film festival. Uh, It is Texas Chainsaw Massacre next week, followed by It Follows, and for Halloween... Did you forget The Exorcist? Well, Halloween. Yeah. The Halloween episode is going to be The Exorcist. <laughs> so we hope that you guys continue joining us keep interacting with us on our social media and please leave us reviews on iTunes if you can um, and spread the word about the podcast uh, I hope that you guys are enjoying horror movie content I definitely always appreciate going back to watch horror films and if you want us to watch anything that we haven't covered this month please recommend it to us on the IG page Yes, we would love to search out other horror movies that uh, we haven't already put on our schedule for this Please, month. someone make Angel watch Hereditary so it can fuck him the way it fucked me for a week. <laughs> but yeah, also expect some other little side things we got going on. Be ready for me to do some uh, car rants, some car ride rants where I'll talk about some of the horror movies I've been enjoying. Because I've actually been going on a lot on a big horror binge this month. 
I've really I've had a lot of fun. I this watched, is the first year where sadly I have not gone on much of a horror binge. Mm-hmm. So I definitely want to see if I can catch a few classics before the month is over. Definitely. Uh, I'll be talking about Hereditary. I'll be talking about Little Monsters, the Lupita Nyong'o zombie movie on Hulu. <laughs> Check it out. It's a fun movie. I'll be talking about... Uh, there's a couple. Uh, I watched uh, Candyman this month. There's Yeah, there, you know, I have, I'll have some things planned for you guys. But yeah, definitely. Thanks for thanks for listening. All right, talk to you guys next week. All right, I'm later. Angel, and I'm Javi. Later, turds.